I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. And I ask you to listen to God's Word as it's found in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I announced last Lord's Day, it's my intention to spend our summer months, July and in August, studying this section of um, Matthew's Gospel, the section that is commonly known as the Beatitudes. Now, if the term Beatitudes is new to you, I don't think it is to many, but maybe, it's simply a Latin word that speaks of the, it's a translation really of the word blessed. If you were a Latin speaker, instead of saying blessed are the poor in heart, you'd say beatus or be, is the poor in heart. You would use uh, the Latin term that is the translation of blessedness. And beatitude just came from the fact that blessed is translated in Latin as beatus. But this is a section that is well known by God's people. It's well loved by God's people. And it comes in a section of Holy Scripture that is also well regarded and well loved by the people of God. The section called the Sermon on the Mount. Last week I sought to set a framework for our studies by looking at how the Beatitudes are the opening words for the Sermon on the Mount, this much larger section. And we endeavor to see what the Sermon on the Mount is. And just in reminding you, it's the law of the king. The God who spoke his law on Mount Sinai now speaks again. He speaks in his son. He speaks in Emmanuel, God with us, incarnate God who comes as the God of Israel to his people. And he speaks now from another mountain, not in Sinai, the desert of Sinai, but in a mountain in Galilee. It's not a different law, but it is an expansion of God's law, a further exposition of the law of righteousness that is enshrined, yes, in the Ten Commandments and other aspects of the instruction were given by God in the Scriptures And it reflects the will of God for his people. How Christians need to be acting and living and making our choices and living our lives in God's world. These are the blessings that enable us to live that kind of life. In order to live the life of the Sermon on the Mount, these beatitudes need to be realities for each of us. We looked at Old Testament precedents for such statements of blessing. We saw that there were many found in the book of the Psalms. There were also the blessings that were spoke from Mount Gerizim that were spoken by six of the tribes of Israel. There were also curses that were found. There were curses and blessings. And God sets forth to his people the way of life and the way of death and calls upon us to choose life, to choose the way of blessedness, the way of conformity to his mind and will, his values, his standards, the qualities of life that are to be that are present in God's own heart and mind and ought to be replicated in us as the people of God. We also saw that there was an outline of the Beatitudes that has some measure of importance because this is not just a list slapped together. It's a unified picture of the righteous. 
of those who live lives of blessedness or happiness in this world. And it has an order to it. It has an order to it that brings us first to see that there needs to be a stripping away of all of the self-life that we make to be the idols that we worship and serve by nature. Self-will, self-pleasing, self-trust, self-love, self-righteousness, self-absorption. The great enemy of righteousness is that we're simply in love with ourselves. We're happy with ourselves. We're satisfied in ourselves. We will never go in the direction of hungering and thirsting for righteousness while we're so enamored, enamored with us. We have to see that in us, that is in our flesh, that dwells not one good thing. We need to be made poor in spirit. We need to be mourning our sins. We need to be made meek in the presence of God. Not thinking that everything is coming to us. And we live in God's world because God designs only to bless us and to make us prosperous and healthy with no problems or troubles or else somehow it's His fault and He's been unfaithful to us. See, the whole matter of meekness is a matter of just getting emptied of ourselves and our expectations of what we think we deserve. We become not self-willed, but God-willed, directed towards His will in all that we are and in all that we do. And it's when we come then to be dissatisfied with ourselves, we come to hunger and thirst for the righteousness that leads to mercy, purity, and peaceableness. These belong together. They form a unity. And they form such a unity that we're not at liberty to pick and choose which of these things we want to emulate, which of these things we want to seek after, which of these things we want to secure. When God's grace comes to any sinner and makes us to be a saint, does that great work of transformation that we call new life or new creation or new birth, as many names for it given in Scripture, what God does is He instills at least the seeds of all these things And all these things are things that need to characterize us as the people of God. Because it's really the question of Christian character that's at stake here. As we take up the first of these Beatitudes this morning, as we take up this matter of poverty of spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, I want to basically do just two simple things. Uh, hardly simple, but two things that we need to focus our minds upon. The first one is this, the words themselves. What is this saying? What is this saying? What are these words themselves? Well, we want to begin there, and then we want to move into the understanding, how do we get to where this statement in these words direct us to? How do you get to become poor in spirit? So we can look at the words themselves and then the way that there leads us to poverty of spirit, to become poor in spirit. First of all, the words themselves. He, that is Jesus, opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. These are statements that all begin with the same word. Blessed. Blessed. What is blessing? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, we said something about this last week. The word itself is the word for, means happiness. But not just any kind of happiness, but a peculiar kind of happiness. 
When I was a child in the summer, my grandparents would often take me to Coney Island Beach. And Coney Island Beach, which is a place that's etched in my youth. I can still see uh, the beach and how it looked in my mind's eye. I remember the parachute jump that was there. I don't think it's there any longer. Certainly I remember the rides that we went on. And uh, Well, I was never one so much for the beach. I preferred Nathan's, of course, and I preferred the rides. And um, I had an, an experience early on in my life when the sea just took me out, uh, my feet out from under me, and I, I was just unable to find up from down. I didn't know how to get back above the waves. And then I feel the feeling of a hand on my neck and lifting me up. It was my grandmother who had seen that I had been taken under and she pulled me out. And from that point forward, I was a sand dweller. I loved to dig on the sand, make sand castles and all of the rest. But there was always a time when we went to Coney Island. If you really wanted me to be happy, it was when they took me to Uncle Freddy's scooter ride. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a scooter ride. Those are the things with the bumper cars where you just bump into somebody and you jarred them. And I just love to be in those cars and I felt the sense of power driving the bumper car into somebody else. And the nice thing about Uncle Freddy scooter ride, that's what it was called, Uncle Freddy scooter ride, is that Freddy was my uncle. <laughs> Freddy was my uncle. So my grandparents dropped me off on Uncle Freddy's scooter ride. I never got off the ride. <laughs> I didn't have to pay any extra money. Just until Grandma and Grandpa came back, I was on that ride. And I was just joyful. That was made me happy. That was happiness indeed from my young, youthful heart. But sooner or later, my grandparents would return. And sooner or later, I had to get off the car. And sooner or later, I recognized that happiness could only last but a brief period of time. That kind of happiness that kind of happiness is a passing pleasure. It's a delight of a moment. It's the joy of circumstances that bring an emotion about that's agreeable to our hearts, a sensation of, of delight just because of what's happening to us. Uh, one writer has said it's happiness, not pleasure, that concerns the biblical writer. Happiness, not pleasure, that concerns the biblical writers. Pleasure may be self-centered, a transient, agreeable sensation or emotion. An instinctive response to a particular stimuli that gratifies the senses. It's something that can be frivolous. It's something that can be illusory. By contrast to what's frivolous or illusory, a momentary sensation that gratifies the senses. By contrast, happiness is deep-seated. It penetrates the very depths of one's being. It's serious and it is enduring. And I think the reason that this happiness is serious and enduring, not just the thing of a passing moment, is because ultimately this happiness that Jesus speaks of is rooted in God. The Bible is very careful in the words that it uses. The word blessedness in the Old Testament has two major words that get translated blessedness. The first one is the word baruchah, or baruch. Uh, and that word baruchah is 
a word that speaks of God's own blessedness. That God Himself is the ever-blessed God. And it's not external stimuli. It's in Himself. He is the ever-blessed God. He's a God who has no trouble or pain or grief of heart and mind. He is a God who changes not. He's ever-blessed in and of Himself. And that word for blessing that characterizes God's blessedness in Himself is also a word that often is used with respect to His purposes for humanity. That God wills that His creatures made in His image and likeness would share His blessedness. That we would enter in to His own joy. Remember Jesus says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He says, Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's joy in the presence of the angels of God. It doesn't say the angels are joyful necessarily, but the angels dwell in the presence of joy. God is a God of eternal, unchanging joy. And He creates us not for cursing, not for misery, not for want, but to enter into His own joy. Hence, He creates man in His image and likeness. We're told in Genesis chapter 1. And you know what He does? He blesses them. Same word that speaks of God's blessing. God confers His own blessedness upon man, His image. Man and woman, His image. Male and female, His image. He gives His own blessedness. And man was to live, man and male and female were to live in a garden of delight, in the presence of God, walking with God with a joy and a happiness that comes from God Himself. kind of joy is that? That replicates the very attribute of joy that God has in Himself. What a wonder that God creates humanity for that very end and purpose. To know the joy of the Lord. To know the blessedness that comes from His presence. The happiness that comes from union and communion with God. And what a horrific thing it is that because of sin... It's no, no longer blessing is, comes into the world, but it's the exact opposite. It's antonym, the thing that's opposite to it, which is cursing. Curse is the ground for your sake. God brings curses into the world because of the sin of man. But yet there's another word that the Bible uses to speak of blessing. And it's a blessing that never describes God. Merochah describes God's blessedness. This other word, Ashar or Asherai, is a word that speaks of the blessing that God Himself gives. And I don't believe it's so much the blessing that is in God Himself, but the blessing that comes to us through the fact that God gives His gifts unto His people. And so there's two ways to experience happiness that the Bible notes. That's the, that's the, the joy and the happiness and the peace and the wholeness and the fullness that we should have because we're made for God. We're made for God Himself. It's what arises out of union and communion with the Lord Himself. It has nothing to do with circumstances. It has to do with our relationship with Him. And then there's the joy that we know because He is the God who in His riches 
gives his gifts to men or mankind. He bestows his gifts upon his people. I think when Jesus speaks these words, he uses the Greek word that is the counterpart to Asherai, Matabucha. It's the blessedness that comes from the fact that God is the God who is a, it has infinite resources of good and gifts that He gives unto His people. It's the blessedness that comes through the gift of the Gospel. It's the gift of Jesus, His Son. It's the gift of God's own Holy Word. It's the gift of God's salvation that brings genuine blessedness to the people of God. And so it's not just something that is common to the world at large. It's something that is the result of the fact that Jesus began to preach the Gospel. He began to speak and call people to repentance for the kingdom of heaven is near. God has intervened in human history in His Son. And these are qualities of life that result from union and communion with Jesus. Coming to know Christ. God imprints holy character into the hearts and minds of His people. I remember preaching or teaching in a Bible study, a home Bible study one time, the Beatitudes, and a Roman Catholic priest came into the group. And imagine, you know, this, this Protestant kid who's been converted just a few years earlier. I hadn't even finished school. I was training for the ministry. And a Roman Catholic priest comes, and I think he was dressed in his clerical garb. And... Uh, a little bit of pressure on me in teaching the Word of God. And so we're going to speak about this blessedness that Jesus is speaking of, of the fact that this is not common to people in a fallen world. That the world is cursed because of sin, but Jesus comes bearing the gifts of His grace. And it's when we come to know Him and we come to experience the grace of His Spirit through the power of a new birth, that these are the graces that belong to the people of God. And the priest responded, he says, well, you mean to tell me that the people living in some place where the gospel's never been proclaimed, never been taught, never been preached, and uh, they, someone who's a chief of one of its tribes goes and makes peace with his neighbor, that that's not what Jesus is talking about? And I said, well, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. As commendable as that act of making peace with your neighbor might be. No, we don't frown upon that. That is part of God's common grace that warring parties would make peace with one another. But you see, this peaceableness that the Bible speaks of is not just settling difficulties and problems. It's the presence of well-being. It's as if the war, the war had never come, the troubles had never come, and everything around you was lush and filled with flourishing plants and, and gardens and, and trees and, and no remnants of war, war at all. That's what the blessing of God is. It's the positive presence of abundance and flourishing. That's what peace means. That's, that's what blessedness means. It's the happiness that comes from receiving God's gifts. It's the blessedness that comes through union and communion with, the, with God Himself. 
And hence it's impervious to the situations that might happen in life. In other words, if I was a Christian at the time when I was riding Uncle Freddy's scooter, I was a blessed man, a blessed youth. Even when I was crashing into other cars, I might have did it a little more gently. I might not have did it with so much malice that filled my little sinner's heart. But even when Grandma and Grandpa came and took me off, I was still blessed because this is a blessing impervious to, to, to circumstances and situations. It has to do with the character God impresses upon our hearts through our relationship to Him and the gifts He grants us freely and abundantly in the Gospel. And we have that sense of what this is about. I think we'll be on the right track of understanding what these Beatitudes are saying to us. Well, who are the blessed? Who are the people that are genuinely happy because of union with God through relationship with God and reception of His gifts? Well, in the first place, they're those who are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, the words that's translated poor is a Greek word that paints a picture for us. And the picture is the picture of someone who's bowed down, hunched over, and holding out a cup with beggarly clothes. Clearly he doesn't have anything to live on. No sufficiency in and of himself. He's a beggar. He's destitute. He's holding out the cup for the passerby to drop in a few coins. He's in absolute need. And he's dependent upon the charity of others. That's what it means to be poor. Is to be absolutely destitute. To have nothing and to need everything. But this destitution is not material. This cowering beggar could well be a billionaire. Could well have millions in the bank. He realizes that towards God, he is that beggar. Towards God, he has nothing to bring, nothing to give, nothing to point to and say, look at me, Lord. Ought you not to be pleased with this? Ought you not to have respect to this? Ought you not to have regard for that? Because look at what I've done. Look at how I've honored you. Look at how I've served you. Look at how I've sought you. Look at how I've honored you. The reality is we've done nothing of the kind. And in of ourselves, we've lived for ourselves. We've sought after our things of ourselves. And we come to the awareness that in that state and condition, we're not kidding. We're not going to become happy. I mean, we'll have momentary stimulus of pleasure, but not true happiness it, it eludes us. It escapes us. Why? Because we don't have the principal thing that's needful for happiness, which is the God of happiness Himself. He's not in our lives. We're distant from Him. We're rebels against Him. We don't want anything to do with Him. And when we come to the place of the recognition that He is vital, 
to our happiness. That God has so designed this thing of creation that happiness will always elude us if we're seeking it apart from Him. When He brings us to see our happiness rests in Him, we come to the awareness, Lord, we have nothing to bring to You. We stand in need of everything from You. And that's where that hand of the beggar stretched out with the cup comes in. Stripped of all self-sufficiency, of all self-security, of all self-righteousness, standing before God as the spiritually destitute, having nothing, standing in need of everything. There's the awareness, there's an, infin- there's an infinitude of resources present in the God of heaven and earth. There's an abundance of blessing that's beyond description. The hand is stretched out and say, Lord, give me what I need. Supply to me what I need. You see, this whole matter of poverty of spirit is not just an awareness of our destitution. It's also an awareness of God's ability to fill the cup to overflowing. To fill our lives in every part with His presence and with His praise and with the delights of knowing Him and living to the praise of His glory. I think a lot of people come to the place where they're destitute in spirit. They're just realizing I'm not worthy of God at all. And just go on with a sense of their unworthiness and they're helpless and helpless. But you see, the gospel doesn't just set forth our need. It sets forth God's answer to that need. God's solution to that need. The fullness of His grace and His presence that's unceasing. That's fully supplying everything we need as His people. So poverty of spirit is essential for the possession of the kingdom of heaven. And notice it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not there will be, theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. That what they're doing is they're working for the future kingdom is that the kingdom of heaven has come to them. God's reign has come to their hearts. God has entered their hearts in the person of His Son as every knee of the believer is bowed in His presence. And again, we never lose that position before Him. Bowed bowed down and bowed over, pinched over, holding out the cup and saying, Lord, fill my mind with Your truth. Fill my heart with Your love. Fill my will with the strength and the energy and the power to live for your glory. In myself I am empty. In myself I have no resources. In myself I am bankrupt. It's not I was poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or blessed the poor in spirit. That's our condition. And it always remains our condition. We never get past the place where we recognize I'm only a sinner saved by grace. But that's not all we see. We see a God of infinite blessings, of endless resources, 
who fully satisfies the hearts and minds and needs of his people with the fullness of his gifts that become ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And so though in and of ourselves we are poor, the reality is we are made rich. We are made rich. And isn't that what Scripture tells us about Jesus? Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he who was rich, rich with all of the glory he had with God before the foundation of the world, for our sakes he became poor. For our sakes he became joined to our humanity. He became the one who said that the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many for our sake he became poor that we through his poverty might be made rich but again it's not riches in ourselves it's not riches native to who and what we are but it's riches that are his that he confers upon us when we come to believe And we come to trust Him and we come to look to Him. That for us who believe, there is that never-ending supply of good. If you know, if you being evil, Jesus, says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give good gifts to those that ask? Lord, grant me the good gift of knowing you better. Grant me the good gift of understanding your truth better. Grant me the ability to honor you more and to serve you more and to love you more and to love others for your, the sake of, the, of your name and to be willing to do your will, to zealously pursue the things of God. Again, in and of ourselves, we have a limited ability to do anything that's good. Again, I was not only a, a youth growing up in New York at Coney Island, but when I hit my teens... It was uh, Greenwich Village. <laughs> Became a really a long-haired hippie with love beads and all the rest. And we had that motto to make love not war. Love was the thing, right? John Lennon. Love is all you need. Love is all you need. But the fact is we have a limited capacity to love even on our best days. Even those that love us most and are closest to us. We just simply are too absorbed with us and ourselves. And we're just too easily set aside with our enmities and our hatreds and our sinfulness and our selfishness. And the hippies found that out. <laughs> because they became like the, the Wall Street robber barons of the next generation. <laughs> they became the self-absorbed uh, yuppies of the next generation. All their idealism went out the window. Why? There was no resource sufficient to meet the ideal. We were doomed to fail. Because sinners can't be saved by Beatles songs. Sinners can't be saved by good intentions. But sinners can be saved by the eternal Son of God made flesh who comes to give His life a ransom for many and comes to invite us to Himself where He tells us that in me you will find rest. 
In me, you'll find rivers of living water. In me, you'll find an endless source of good. We have an infinite God who has infinite supplies of good to give. Our only problem is we don't draw upon those realities as often as we should. We just like to get out of beggarhood, don't we? We like to say I'm sufficient. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm good. No, you're not good. On your best day, you're not good. On your best day, you need to hunch over. You need to put out the cup. You need to say, Lord, I need you. I need the gifts and blessings that only you can supply. We never get past poverty of spirit. We never get past the reality that we're sinners saved by grace. And so that's the way of the poor in spirit. I've been talking about it. I haven't actually told you I got to that point just yet. But you see, we need to see and acknowledge and remember the reality of our situation, the reality of our destitution, the reality of our need. We never get past that reality. Now again, that's not the only reality. And I'm not suggesting we need to walk around our lives with this miserable sinner's complex and say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. No. I don't believe that Christians say, woe is me. Christians say, blessed be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. A Christian says, in myself I am a pauper, but in Him I'm a king. In Him I'm a king. An heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. It's never safe to see ourselves as a king if we don't see ourselves as destitute. And understanding there's nothing we have but what we have received. There's nothing we ever do but is by His grace. There's nothing we ever have but it's not a gift that He's given. So we don't get enamored with the gift as much as the one who gave it. And our gratitude is directed to Him and our praise is directed to Him and our love is directed to Him. And we become safe to receive the honors that God bestows upon His people because it's not in the context of a self-absorbed existence but in a God-saturated commitment. We need to see our sins, yes. But we need to see our sins in the light of His glory and His grace. Now, granted, Isaiah did say in the light of God's glory, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. And God says, No, no. Not woe is me, Isaiah. He sends the seraphim with the cold to clutch his tongue to say, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Drink deeply from the well of his divine forgiveness. Put out the cup as a needy beggar saying, Lord, let me know the reality and the comforts of your forgiveness. I need to see my sin, yes, but in the light of your glory, yes, but your grace as well, of a forgiving God, of a merciful God, of a God filled with kindness and tender compassions to his children. We need to be coming before the Lord with outstretched cups, asking to be given what we need. Lord, fill my mind with your truth. Fill my heart with your love. Fill my will with the strength to honor and to serve you. Must be 
the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness and grace. We're thankful for the fact that even though in the face of our folly, where we thought happiness could be attained just in the stuff of our own enablement or our experiences or our own trying to figure it out on our own, that you came and you humbled us. You showed us we're not created to be happy apart from you. We're made to be happy in you and with you. Happy with the gifts that come from you in a relationship of joyful celebration of how great you are, how good you are, and how your salvation has met us in our greatest need. Teach us poverty of spirit, not as a past tense reality, but a present tense reality, ever taking in from the infinite supply of your grace and goodness all that we need daily to live before your eyes. We ask you to bless your people, to hear our prayers, to make us to be God-dependent upon you in every, every conceivable way as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.